Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 9, Episode 16. In this week's episode, I had the very talented Chris Lambert on the show. He is the host of the Your Own Backyard podcast, where he has launched an investigation into the disappearance of Kristen Smart. The podcast was great. Chris is great. And I really enjoyed my conversation with him. Uh, I'm joined in the studio today, of course, by Mr. Mike Bussing. Hey. And Mr. Zach Weaver. Hey, guys. And I know Zach's got a phone full of notes, and we got questions from you guys. So right after the break, we'll go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. Hundredth cappuccino by eight, two hundredth customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our stay connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus Packs only. T's and C's apply. All right, Mike, before we get into um, listener questions, I can see that Zach has uh, his phone open with a series of notes on it. So, Zach, why don't we go ahead and get into the questions you have or the thoughts you have first before we get into these questions. So one of my biggest questions isn't totally about this case, but it's brought up a lot in this case, is the cadaver dogs. Okay. And I think there's a lot of listeners that ask questions about the cadaver dogs, which is I'm interested about. Just, I, I don't fully understand how they work. Now, I know it picks up decomposition of a human body, but do you, do you have any idea of like how quickly that, that begins to happen or how quickly they can pick up a scent or how long that would last? Yeah, sort of. I mean, I, I don't know that there's specifics out there on it, I think, but I, I've studied not so much cadaver dogs, but other sent dogs before through my work at the fire department, we work with search and rescue dogs and um, even hunting. There's like deer tracking dogs, which that is, that one is really impressive because you, the assumption would be, so say someone shoots a deer and it runs off and they're, they're trying to find it and they, they lose the trail and can't find the deer and they'll bring in these, these dogs. And, you know, I would always think that they must be, they're like bloodhounds, right? They're smelling for blood. And they're not. They're they're tr- those dogs are trained specifically to pick up on a it's it's a chemical response 
of an animal that has been injured. Basically, like when like adrenaline's pumping, whatever it is, they put off a very specific compound, and it's and it's it settles into the ground. They're able to smell it, and it's. I mean, I've I've seen them where there was you know say a herd of deer, mm-hmm. and someone were to shoot one, and it takes off, and six deer go six different directions, and those dogs can pick up on the smell of the particular deer that has been injured and follow it. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And so that's, it has nothing to do with this other than the fact that it, th- that goes to show you how, how powerful their noses are and how well they can be trained to a very specific thing to search for. Um, similarly, when we would do search and rescue trainings at the fire department, they'd bring in the German shepherds. I was at a, an event one time, uh, it was like at a car dealership down here or something, but we, the fire department was down there showing off our equipment and these search and rescue dogs came in. And so the place is packed with, you know, hundreds of people. And I was talking to the trainers and they were like, no, they, they, they are not smelling your footprints or anything like you're, you're, you're every second you're shedding skin cells off and your skin cells, your hormones, your every year that your, your skin cells that are coming off of you are leaving a very unique particular scent, and these dogs can lock into that scent and follow it. And so as a demonstration, they had me take my hat off and let the dog smell the hat, or I left it with the trainer. They told me just walk through the crowd. So we're talking about a jam-packed, it was at Tyler Automotive down here, big giant showroom, jam-packed with hundreds of people, and I walked, weaved through all these people while the dog was like locked up in a, in a cage. And went behind desks, under a desk, all over in one office, out another office, out into the bay where they fix cars, all the way back, and then hid under a desk in an office. And then once I settled in, they had they gave the dog my hat, let him smell it for a second, and took off. And I watched him nose to the ground, weave through the every step I took. Wasn't distracted at all by the hundreds of other people there and all the other smells, was able to lock in and went through under the desk, everywhere I went all the way out and came right up on me and started barking when he found me. So just giving you examples of how those dogs can be trained for a particular scent and the fact that humans and animals have, we put out different compounds in, in, I don't know what the right, I'm using the word compound. That's probably not the right word. I want to say hormones or pheromones. Could be. Yeah. But whatever it is, we, we, we leave a trail behind us everywhere we go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a cadaver dog is, is because people be like, oh, well, they could, they could hit on a dead raccoon or they don't. There is a very specific, uh, and they do call this a compound uh, of, of smells that come off of decaying human flesh. It's very, very, very specific. And see, that's where I get a little confused because in my head, it would take time for something to de- to decompose or decay. Right. So that's why I don't know how long, you know what I mean? Is it with hours? Is it, does it take a couple of days? I mean, is it immediately? So from what I have read, your body, we already know that the second you die, your body starts to change. Mm-hmm. Um, there are processes, cells begin to break down. Uh, we know this from when we study like lividity and rigor mortis and things when we're trying to determine time of death or, you know, when would at the fire department again, when we would do like dive rescue, like how long is the body going to be on the bottom of the water body and how long is it going to take before they float to the top, before they sink again? That's all. These are all like gases that are coming out of your body as your as your cells are breaking down. And that process does start immediately. From what I've read, 
a cadaver dog, the, the, the specific compounds that a cadaver dog is smelling for begin being released from your body within minutes of death. Now, they may not be in a strong enough quantity for the dog to pick up on it quite that, that quickly. From, from, from my research, it seems like they're saying like within like one to three hours of death, that for sure a cadaver dog can pick up on the fact that there where there has been a dead body in a, in a position. And then on the other end of that, there really is no limit. I mean, I, I was, I was just reading something before we came in here that, that said that they've, they've, there was a study done where they tested cadaver dogs on like, that's the word I'm looking for. They're, they're anthropological like dig sites where literally a dead human body has been in this cavern or whatever it with this catacomb. It had been there for 2,700 years. Wow. And the dog still alerted to the, the smell. So it, it, it sticks around. I'm sure there are environmental factors as with anything, you know, over rain, wind, snow that could, you know, kind of maybe wash the scent away. But it, it seems like pretty darn quickly that uh, the cadaver dogs can start picking up on the scent. That's really interesting. So taking this back to the case. They had cadaver dogs pick up on a scent in his room, Paul Flores' room. Right. So how long do you think that body could have been there or if the body was even there? I, I don't think it was there. There's a lot of theories on this. And there's even on this particular case, there's a lot of question. Uh, different experts have said different things. Mm -hmm. Some Obviously, there is there can be transfer. I mean, those chemical compounds actually get on, you know, they get on your clothes, they get on your person, whatever. Uh, and you can transfer them someplace. Some people have said, well, they alerted so strongly that she had to have actually been there. And then other said, people said, no, it, it could have been transferred. I think just because of the, the logistics of it, that probably it's transferred, especially when they're hitting on only particular spots in the room and not the whole room mm -hmm. and just like a corner of the bed and not the whole bed. I don't know exactly how all that works, but my feeling on it is that, that she was probably killed that, that Paul Flores, I personally believe that Flores likely is the one who killed her and probably well we know if if he killed her that the body had to been moved somewhere and concealed somewhere so spent time with the body and then probably went back to his room and transferred that that's just my uh, opinion because there's also that time thing right so if she was killed right there mm -hmm. and was only there for a short period of time before he moved her that like how did it, how did the smell get that strong that quickly? But there's but at the same time you can say maybe killed her there and she she was in the room decaying for you know days hours before before the body was moved. But that just it just doesn't seem to add up because it's only very small particular places. So that that actually leads me into one of my other questions. And maybe I just completely missed this. I have no idea. But in the episode you talked about where her body could be. Uh -huh. And you stated pretty bluntly you thought it was under the garage. Yeah. Now, where did that I, – I, maybe I completely missed where that came from, but where did that come from? I didn't realize we didn't talk about the specifics of that on the podcast. But that's part – that was on Chris's podcast, on the Your Own Backyard podcast. So there, there's this whole – and I'm not even super clear on it. But there's this whole saga of things that have gone on with Paul Flores' mother's house. Uh, we talked about the the watch beeping there that the renter heard, which we'll talk about. I know we got a question about that from a listener, so we'll talk about that later. But there was this, there was supposedly some concrete work that was done, like right after she was killed, and when the police got a warrant, cadaver dogs picked up on that property 
the the scent of human remains that there had been a dead human there in the backyard. The ground penetrating radar picked up some anomalies, but did nothing to that clearly indicated a human corpse. Uh, there wasn't any digging done, and then what happened is later in the area, I believe the area where the cadaver dogs had hit at one point, they built they built a garage over that place. A concrete floor built a garage over it. So when they went back a second time with the ground penetrating radar in the place where they were hoping to look and possibly dig, now there's a garage there that's full of stuff. And they weren't able to obviously get it had like like chicken wire in the uh as rebar in the concrete. There's a lot of factors that did made it so they couldn't get a good reading underneath it. The, and then I say that that's possibly what and I, I don't think Chris thinks that's where her body is. I, I think he I think he believes that it was later moved, uh, but that it was maybe there at one time. But at one point they go. So Flores' mom still owns the property and rents it out, won't let police on it unless they have a warrant. Uh, at one point, they're able to get access to a neighbor's yard and take soil samples from the, from the fence line right near where the garage is. And they pull soil samples out and they test those and those come up positive for decaying human remains. Again, a very specific, chemically specific compound, uh, which would happen you know, if someone was buried there that th- those those gases and chemicals will seep through the ground. And so that's why I said I think she's probably was buried there and is probably they, they planted a garage on top of her and she's probably still there. It, man, if that garage is put there for the purpose of concealment, I feel like there's a lot of people involved in this. I mean, maybe not the actual murder, but like if they built that garage there, like his parents are now part of this. They're culpable, right. at least. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot going on there. Yeah. It, the, the thing about a I think about that, too, because it, it's, it's a rental property. Mm hmm. That's a big, I own rental properties and I've never thought about, you know, spending 30 grand, putting a garage up for a renter. Mm-hmm. The whole idea is keep your costs down and, you know, to, to, to make a profit from it. So it seems a little odd that they would just put a garage up there. But the nice thing about a garage, if you're trying to conceal a buried body is the fact that you don't have to dig for a garage, mm-hmm. you know, just a little bit of footings around there. It's, it's on a slab. It's not like a basement where you're digging 10 feet into the ground to, to dig everything up. And then the chicken wire and the concrete, is that even a common practice? I, I don't know how common it is. It's, I, I wouldn't say it's uncommon. For, it depends on you know where you're at, I guess. I, I, don't, I don't know how common it is, it is there. I've heard, I should say this. I've heard of it being done before. It's kind of a cheap, cheap rebar mm-hmm. to hold everything together. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, any wear with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW group void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right. I've got two more questions for you. One is about the bicyclist that was the witness to what we believe may have been the murder. Right. And my second one is you guys kind of talked about the Fifth Amendment, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Is there any questions throughout what we have that cover any of that? No, we don't have anything on those subjects. So I guess let's go to the bicyclist first. Okay. As a lot of listeners know, I'm kind of the guy that's the skeptic a little bit. Like, right. I'm, I'm always the one that's kind of on the fence. Like, not that I don't want to believe, but I, I always am the guy that looks, tries to look everywhere. So the bicyclist kind of strikes me weird. Like, him riding by in the middle of the night, and he, and he can give this description of these two people fighting, just by riding by in the middle of the night seemed weird to me. That Like, he was he was able to say, yes, this woman was was over six foot, and and this man was smaller than me. But if they're if they're actually, like fighting and grappling it seems like it would be hard and especially in a, a moment of just going by well I, you mentioned this to me earlier and you were talking you said something about like looking into a dorm and seeing it mm-hmm. so i don't i think part of the, i think you might have misunderstood that part and i wonder if that changes it, they weren't in the dorm He's, i thought he said through a window no no well unless i'm wrong okay my, I mean, maybe maybe i just heard what i wanted to hear yeah my understanding was they were outside he was riding his bike and saw them outside of a dorm okay and, you know, it depends, you know, they, they may not have been, you know, Greco-Roman style wrestling, but they were getting into it. I think he said he had her by the neck. And I mean, I, I 100% believe him because he doesn't know who Paul Flores is. He doesn't know anything about the case. When he's questioned about it back at the time of her disappearance, he says that, you know, I, I saw two people fighting. The campus was very quiet and dead. You know, there was nobody around that night. And I saw a tall woman. And a short guy and described her as probably being over six foot tall and him being shorter than him. He may not have the, t- the heights exactly right, but, but for that to be a coincidence and there's no, and no reason for him to make it up. He doesn't know, you know, he doesn't know Kristen Smart. Mm-hmm. Maybe he knows from flyers or whatever that she was tall, but he doesn't know Paul, Paul Flores. He doesn't know how tall Paul Flores is. So for him to like, and it's in the area where they would have been walking back that night and mm-hmm. we know the two of them were together. We know that Paul is short, and especially compared to Kristen, who's who is over six foot tall. I think you'd notice that, and I think it would be it would stand out to you that you know, wow, she's really tall. And there's there's a you know to see a woman physically fighting with a man, and she happens to be a full head taller than him. I think that might stick out in your mind. In your mind, so if what you said is accurate, and what I was believing is is not. It makes a lot more sense that if he if he passed them and they're outside. In in my head, I envisioned him riding past and seeing into a dorm on his way by. And and that's where like height becomes weird because you don't yeah. know what's going on in there. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm I I'm gonna say I'm sure of it that it was outside because they don't know, you know, the the police never even identified which building he was looking into. There were some issues about which building he was near. So I, I I'm pretty darn sure that it was he saw them outside. But, you know, he had given that description to police back then. And then again, years later, when he's tracked down in Australia where he lives, you know, he gives the same account. He remembers about where it was at and it was a tall woman and a short guy and and they were having a physical confrontation. Well, I think that clears up a lot for me on that. OK, so the the biggest thing I wanted to talk about is we brought it up in the, or you guys brought it up in the episode is the Fifth Amendment. Right. And I know that I'm not the only listener that had some issues with what was said and how it was said in the episode yeah there was some social media discussion about it yeah one of the things is chris kind of talked about him invoking his fifth amendment right and that you know there was some things said that he was like oh i can't believe he did that or he how could he do that 
Yeah. But that's the point. I mean, it's your right to do that. It sucks that he did that. Yeah. But that's his right. Based on one of the social media posts, I think that my position on it wasn't particularly clear in the episode. So what I was trying to say, you know, when I said, you know, we're, we work wrongful conviction cases all the time and we're just wishing that they would have invoked their right and not spoken to police. And they have, and that's why they're in a position they're in. In this case, I wish this guy would talk mm-hmm. and he didn't. And it's frustrating. So, so it, it is frustrating, but it'd be clear just for, you know, he was, he had every right to do that. It, it became especially frustrating when he was at the, he was at a deposition for a civil case and continually invoked the Fifth Amendment um, and refused to speak. And again, it's okay for him to do that. And I'm sure his attorney advised him to do well, that. I, and I'm sure that's where that came from, is that based on his legal counsel, they said, you're taking this on everything. Right. Because it, and it, and it became frustrating and a deal was made about it on the podcast that you know they're literally asking him, did you go to Cal Poly? I plead the Fifth. It's like, well, these are innocuous questions. So it was, for me, it's just more frustration. It's not that, not that I think he didn't have the right to do it. Mm-hmm. Not that I, you know, I tell people all the time, if you're ever questioned by the police for anything, you say lawyer and that's it. You don't speak. But see, I see the other end of that. While I, I do agree that I think this guy did it. I see the other end of that of like, I, I do think it's frustrating that he wouldn't answer simple questions. Right. But that's what you're, that, I mean, if you're not going to answer, you're not, you shouldn't answer. Right. Because you're giving them anything. Did you did you go to Cal Poly? Or, yeah, and then you go through. Well, and the, then did you know Chris is smart? Well, I played the fifth. Regardless of if you did or not, now you're looking suspicious. Right. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. By by, by cherry picking what you played the fifth to, then you certainly will. You know, draw attention to those questions. Mm-hmm. Like, did you go to Cal Poly? Yeah. Did you go out to the bar that night? Yeah. Did you kill Chris and Smart? I played the fifth. Yeah. You, you know, it, it looks real suspicious. Yeah. So if you're gonna do it, you have to do it across the board. Yeah. And and so yeah, I, I didn't mean for anybody listening to come across as though I thought it was wrong that he did that. More of my position on it was that it's frustrating that he's never spoke on that. Uh, on the other side of it, as far as Chris, understand Chris is not not uh, you know th- this is this is new to him. The criminal justice system is not something that he's super well versed in. And um, he, he had said at one point that if every murderer was allowed to just plead the fifth and not speak, no one would ever be caught. Obviously, that's not accurate. I didn't. Somebody did ask, well, why didn't you correct him on that? I said, well, it wasn't worth. We all know that. My audience knows that's not accurate. That's that's how he looked at it, and he's frustrated with it. But obviously, that's not true. And and again, I still would recommend to anyone, innocent or guilty, don't speak to the police. Nothing good ever comes from speaking to the police without an attorney. Now, eventually, if, if an attorney says, okay, yes, you should say this, this, and this, and you should go tell your truth, uh, if an attorney tells you that, fine. But I would not speak to the police without an attorney ever. My kids have been, at a very young age, have been taught, you ask for a lawyer. That's all you say. Lawyer, lawyer, lawyer. So I 100% get it. The, the, the issue is, in this case, there seems to be an awful lot of circumstantial evidence, at the very least, that this guy may likely have killed this woman and and her family sure would love to know what happened to her and where her body's at. And it's frustrating that he won't say anything because we don't, cause, and it's because we're not getting the chance to trip him up in a lie because he's not talking. Okay. Let's get to these questions from listeners on social media. Our first one comes from Philip. I live minutes from Chris Lambert. Is there anything local we can do to help him? You know, I don't know. I mean, he, I know he gets a lot of tips in, 
it sounded like from his one man band story that he doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily like group work all that much. Uh, but I, I would suggest just going to there. He has a website. I think it's your own dot com or your own backyard podcast dot com. Uh, and there's a contact form there. So if you live locally and you'd like to help, I'd recommend just reaching out to him through his website. Shannon says police were able to track down dorm phone records. Were they ever able to obtain Paul's home phone records for both houses and or cell phone records? I assume that only his dad may have had a cell phone in 1996, although many young people began carrying phones in 1994 and 95. His dad worked for a phone company. Yeah, well, his dad worked for a landline phone company. And I, I'm sure there were people out there that had cell phone. I, I graduated high school in 97. Uh, this was a year after this. And I, I didn't know AC. We had pagers. Nobody had a cell phone, uh, at least that I knew of in, in 97. I think my grandfather had a bag phone in his car. Uh, he's the only person I knew that had a phone then. But any, anyway, regarding the question, no, the only thing I'm aware of is the check in the dorm room phone records. And they know uh, there was a call made that night, I think, late that night. And then nothing after that. I, I've never seen, you know, police have never, they've never really pursued Paul Flores. I don't, and I certainly don't think they pursued him enough to do things like subpoena phone records and things like that. I mean, these are things that could have been done that may have helped them to build a case, but no, I don't think they ever did. Next, she says, hopefully the police have enough evidence with what they have gathered this year to finally find Kristen and charge the murderer and accomplices. What I struggle with is how he would have moved the body, whether she was assaulted in that common room outdoors, in his room, etc. She was taller than him, and I cannot imagine that he could have moved her on his own when she was unconscious. So who helped him? If no one, like a friend, helped him right away, I think that makes it more likely that she was killed in his room. That would have given him a lot of time to get help and clean up. But if it was his dad, how did he contact him? Chris said there was no calls from Paul's dorm room phone after his Friday evening call to his sister's house. I don't necessarily think that if he did it, that anybody had to help him. I, I have, I mean, it's just a theory and I'm not super well read into the case other than listening to Chris's podcast and a little bit of online research. But my thought, what I came away from it was that probably if we piece everything together, uh, that if they're having this altercation outside, if, if the bicyclist that you mentioned, Zach, if his story's accurate, and I believe he said that the man had the woman by the neck, like arm around her neck, you know, that that could have been the murder happening right then outdoors if he strangled her. You know, there's 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 no blood with that or anything that if he's out there in what is a, a campus devoid of people and he strangles her and kills her, that my thought has always been that, well, maybe he then, you know, just stashed her body somewhere quickly, like, you know, throw throw her body into the bushes somewhere and get his car and I don't, you know, she was tall, but she wasn't super big. I mean, I, I don't, I've certainly, this is the most firefighter references I've ever had in one episode. Um, but you know, we've trained on that all the time, picking up unconscious or dead bodies. And I've seen people, you know, it's something we have our brand new recruits do with no training. Certainly somebody that's full of adrenaline at the same time could either drag or pick up and move a body and move it into a car. I don't, I don't know why. That wouldn't be possible. And again, remember, you have it, it's nighttime, it's late at night, and it's an empty campus. I don't even think it would be difficult. I haven't seen the layout as far as like how close you could get a vehicle to where you know maybe that uh, that interaction happened. 
But, you know, in most college campuses, there's roads and cars all, you know, and parking spots all over the place. And my thought has always been that he, that, that if he, he finished what supposedly the bicyclist saw him starting, killed her there, maybe stashed the body, got his car, put the body in the car, and then took off and took it to mom's house or wherever, and then came back and then moved it again, you know, got it out of his car and, and put the body you know, wherever it was, it was concealed, but then goes back to campus. Hopefully, you know, probably, I don't know how far away mom's house is, but you'd think maybe you'd want to be there by morning as an alibi. And that to me would explain the cadaver dog. You know, if, if he was moving her body an hour or two or three after he killed her, once he gets it to wherever he concealed the body and then goes back to the campus, he's got that smell on him, on his clothes. Remember, it's, it's in the corner of the trash uh, or the, of the mattress and in the trash can. You know, so like maybe he's wearing gloves, maybe, you know, something that he discarded when he got back that, you know, you know, one thing that will happen a lot of times with strangulations is you'll get like a frothy um, mucus that'll that'll come out of uh, out of your mouth after death. You know, so he could have had something like that on him where he, you know, threw something away. Uh, but that's always been my thought. I don't I don't feel like it happened inside of a room and then out in the in the phone call thing is another part. I, I definitely don't see him, you know, throwing a dead body over his shoulder and walking down the hallways of the dorm to get it out of there. I don't, I don't, I just don't see that as being reasonable. I think that in, in, in that case, you know, the, the panicking, not thinking straight criminal that has a dead body in his dorm room gets in his car and drives to Mexico, mm-hmm. you know, not, not starts to worry about concealing the body. Yeah. I think the only reason that the thought process that they might be going through might lead them to concealing a body is because, you know, they think that if they can hide the body, then that will clear them. Natasha says, did Kristen and Paul Flores actually know each other? Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My understanding is, and this is just based really solely on the podcast, uh, on Chris's podcast, is that they, they didn't know each other other than they were at a party together. They had mutual friends. They were all like hanging out together that night. I, th- I think they maybe even just, I-, I think maybe she knew of him. He's friend of friends. And, you know, their, their relationship is based mostly on the fact that they hung out together that night. This is my understanding. They didn't have like a, they, they weren't friends, if that makes sense. Ellen says, I feel like Jamie Snow is in prison on less evidence. Also in Chris's podcast, Flores' father's girlfriend said that he got a call in the middle of the night on Saturday and got up and left in a rush. Maybe that is when he helped his son with the body. I mean, who knows? It, it, it could be, but that, that that doesn't cut against the theory that I that I was that I was just explaining, or the hypothesis that I'm breaking down. Because I think that if he did it, it seems likely that both mom and dad, because we heard we hear in if you listen to Chris's podcast, we hear a deposition, a couple depositions, I think, with Paul's dad. And hear him just lying and changing stories or stories about his truck. And it, like, it, it seems very obvious he's trying to cover something up. Then you got all the cadaver dog stuff going on at mom's house. So I think it's possible that, that, that if Paul killed Kristen, that he moves the body to mom's house 
and then from there calls dad and says, we need to do something, you know, more permanent with his body, which is, I think, a lot of maybe where Chris is coming from, um, where he thinks, well, maybe the body was there for a period of time, but then maybe they moved it out to, you know, the avocado grove at dad's place or something like that. But yeah, I, th- I think that that's, that's entirely possible that, you know, and it, it actually even fits better because of the lack of cell phones. Uh, at that time, I think that it, it's possible that that call came from mom's house to dad's house. And as going back to one of the first questions, it sure would be nice if we had those phone records. Amanda says, I'd love to know if there are any updates on the two trucks that were seized. No, I, not that I'm aware of, but it sounds like Chris is working on some update episodes and or at least an update episode. And, and I have a hunch that that might have something to do with it. Kelsey says, first of all, thank you so much for introducing me to Chris and his podcast. I'm pretty picky when it comes to podcasts and everything from the sound quality to Chris's demeanor had me hooked. Second, this case is infuriating. How can people be put in prison for life for being in an area that a murder took place and this guy still walks free? How can people be put in prison for life for being in an area that a murder took place and this guy still walks free? I'm not saying we should just be accusing and trying everyone for murder. But what is the flaw in our justice system that there is a boatload of evidence, both circumstantial and not, in my opinion, against this guy, and he still gets to walk free? But then people like Jamie Snow and Jesse Eldridge are sitting in prison. Makes me so sad and disappointed in our system. The problem is the people factor. And, and I, don't, I don't know how to fix it. This case is, is infuriating, especially, as, as she said here, it's a great point that we've seen it. The other way, and I don't, you know, it, we're we're a few weeks away from launching into our season ten case, and you're and you're going to be asking yourself the same question there. In that case, with no evidence, or even go to the West Memphis three case. Aside from from Jesse and Jamie, uh, on, they're the same. I mean, the police are just so insistent on getting on arresting and convicting someone with no evidence that they're working so hard to fabricate a case against them. You know, look at, at, at Jesse Eldridge's case with his brother, you know, for years, nothing. And they keep pushing and pushing and pushing, end up lying to Troy Eldridge, telling him that he's going to get arrested. The Jesse's flipped on him and pushing him into writing out a statement so that they can arrest Jesse and put him in prison for the rest of his life. So we've seen this so many times. And then you have a case like this one where there's way more evidence than there ever was against just just about anybody. That, that we've worked on their cases and they just don't, they, they won't do anything with it. And it's, and it's, I think it's a human factor. There, there, there's some reason either the DA or the police department just either they don't think they have enough, and it could be as simple as that. They don't think they have enough evidence to get a conviction. And so they just keep looking for more evidence. And the next thing you know, two decades have gone by and they still haven't found any more evidence and it just becomes cold. I think one thing that separates them, and I'm not saying this is the only thing, but one thing that separates them that I notice is that he sought counsel right away. Right. And and these other people didn't. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. So I, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. I think if he had not, good point, if, if he had not done what, again, we suggest doing, you know, he got in, it should, you know, how would things look differently with some of these other people that we've worked with? But yeah, he gets a lawyer and never speaks. Imagine if he just came in and started getting interviewed and they start and they were asking him questions that he was unable to answer or he was tripping up with. And, you know, I, I think that they would have pursued him more. But once he lawyered up right away, they could never talk to him. But even with that, I don't under to me, 
with you know i i'm no expert but i've got a pretty decent knowledge of how the criminal justice system works after all these years and i think there's certainly enough evidence i mean what do we have we have the cadaver dogs in his room at his at his mother's house we know from the friends that were in the group that he was the last one to be with Kristen that night we have an eyewitness at the at the scene that sees a tall woman and a short man that both fit Kristen and Paul's descriptions physically fighting that night. I mean, th- like th- that's a that should be enough to at least arrest him. And, and maybe there's some logic in saying, "Oh, yeah, we could arrest him," but then he, you know, that's not enough evidence. He could get he could get off at trial. But it's like, my God, you at least gotta you gotta try. Our last question comes from Jamie. I found the renter's report of the watch alarm going off outside the window of Flores' mother's house so eerie. Is there a chance the police would go back and actually dig there, even though the GPR didn't hit on anything? I don't think so. I mean, they'd have to have a warrant to do that. I think they've dug in that area. Well, maybe they haven't dug in that area. but Well, so from my understanding is they had a warrant to dig. They went out there but never dug. Right. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they had a warrant to do the GPR. And then also dig, told them that they couldn't dig. And then the FBI agent that you hear on the podcast, I think it was from the FBI that that helped them get the warrant, said, no, it very clearly said they could have dug and they chose not to because mm-hmm. they didn't want to go through the time and expense of it. But the the watch thing is one of the things that's, that's man, it is super eerie. I know Zach said you had you had some some issues with it. I, I do have a little issue with it. By all means, I'm not stepping on it. I'm not saying it's not there. I just have a hard time with it saying that if it's loud enough to wake those people up at 420 in the morning, in mm-hmm. the house, in their bed every morning, to the point that they get up, they set alarms to go outside to try to find it, that they wouldn't have found it or at least narrowed it down to where it could have been. Yeah, I, I'd like to see pictures of the backyard to see, you know, if we're talking about a small little flower box mm-hmm. or if it's like a big, massive planter with rocks in it where, you know, it could be anywhere. And, you know, those high pitched. And I don't know if it's just a beep or if it's a, you know, a whole alarm. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't I don't know, you know, how long it was that they had to, you know, to track it down. So, I, I don't know. It, it is weird that they never found it. But at the same time, I'd, I believe them 100 percent because these people had no idea. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when they when they told their story, they didn't know. And at the time when they were hearing the beeps, they didn't know anybody thought there might be a dead body out there. Mm-hmm. You know, they just they just were hearing this beep. So they, it, that leads you to think, well. How hard did they look? Yeah. And that's my, I guess my point is it's not that I don't believe them because why would you make that up? Right. Especially if you don't know anything about it. Why would you make that up? Right. But it just doesn't seem like they looked very hard. If it's, if it's loud enough to wake you up. Right. Inside your house that you're going to go outside and look for it and then multiple times look for it. It seems like it would be loud enough to at least figure out where it was. Yeah. You'd think so. But again, have you ever had a, a smoke detector chirping in your house and tried to figure out which one it was? Yeah. You know, it, it's the high pitched sounds have a weird way of of masking their location. And again, I think that the fact that they didn't know there was a dead body out there, they were just trying to figure out where the hell this watch was. Mm-hmm. You know, they probably didn't put a hell. You know, if they knew like, hey, we think there might be a dead body in your backyard and you hear it and you're going to, you know, dig and dig and dig until you find the watch. But 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 the way that it came out. You know, where they're they're telling the story and it was like the mother and the daughter both remembering that happening. I I think it for for sure happened. I just think they just weren't looking hard enough for it to actually find it. You never know when they said, yeah, there were times we went out and we're looking for it and listening and digging. 
what does that mean? Does that mean one time they were like, let's go dig for it? Or were they out there every day? You know, I mean, how many times really are you going to go out there and mm-hmm. do it? It may not have been as excessive as it, as it kind of sounded like. And with that being said, thanks, everybody, for all of your questions and comments. Uh, a couple of announcements. I know we've already announced this, but uh, one more time. Uh, in the next week or two, you guys should have um, a trailer for our new podcast, which will be this format that we are taking and creating its own podcast. The podcast is going to be called True Crime Binge. Uh, and we already have social media set up. We haven't posted anything. So if you want to get updates on when everything's happening and what guests are coming, you can follow us at true crime binge on all forms of social media. Super excited to start doing that. Um, and the first episode of true crime binge is going to air on Wednesday, February 3rd. It will air every Wednesday thereafter. Uh, it'd be basically this format, uh, except for a little, probably a little less focused on cases and more about podcast the idea is every week you can tune in and get introduced to another podcaster and another podcast and find your next big true crime binge hence the name uh so that's coming february 3rd the trailer's coming soon social media is already active at true crime binge and the reason that we're creating the new podcast and stopping this format on truth and justice is because as we've mentioned season 10 is coming I am already deep into the weeds in our season 10 case I'm actually next week's follow up uh, will be recorded via Zoom because I'm getting on a plane uh, this Sunday and heading out to spend five days in the field investigating and conducting interviews for season 10. We're super excited to launch that. That season, our new case, season 10 of Truth and Justice, is going to begin on February 7th. So the last episode of this series is going to be on the 31st of January. And we've got some great episodes coming up for you as we close out season nine. Beginning with this Sunday in two days where I have Delia D'Ambra on to talk about two cases that she covered in her podcast, Counterclock. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. 
Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.